Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Well, hey, this is Dyke Drummond here from thehappymd.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Today, our guest is Jonathan Fisher, MD. He's a cardiologist in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, he has a, a group on LinkedIn called Ending Physician Burnout. They're going to have a global summit on February 25th of 2021. And Jonathan and I have been talking about all sorts of things, but what I want to talk to him about on this podcast is his story of his burnout, because everybody's burnout's different. There are all sorts of lessons each of us can learn from stories from our colleagues, the kind of stories that we almost never tell each other. And so welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks, Dyke. It's great to be here. I appreciate yeah. it. And uh, he's got some uh, labradoodles in the background that may wander in or not. We're going to have fun <laughs> with them. But Jonathan, however you want to start, I'd love to hear your burnout story. I'm happy to share it. I really appreciate, Dyke, everything that you've done. And you know that you are part of my burnout story and you're part of the good the good part of the story. Hey, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Before you even knew me, I was there and I was reading your book and I was on your website and checking all that out. And it's just worth noting how valuable it is to have somebody like you out there. And you inspired me to start speaking and to start raising my voice, whereas good. the instinct in burnout is isolation. And that's the most crippling part. And going back, I'm part of a legacy of physicians. My dad is 94. He's still living in New Jersey. And he was an old-timey physician in Livingston, kind of like Norman Rockwell, where there's a shingle on the oak tree in the front of our house. And he took care of every kind of patient you could imagine in this small town back then in the 50s with a couple thousand people in it. So he spun his own blood. He did treadmill tests. He did x-rays. He did minor procedures. And this was in the basement of the house we grew up in. Very uh, first, cool. Yeah, first floor of the house. Mm. And so one after another, mom and dad had kids and ended up having seven children. And there was a domino effect going on. So my oldest brother, Eddie, would go on house calls with dad in the station wagon, with, and he would carry the leather bag. And then Laura came on after him, and both of them decided to become physicians. And then came Naomi. Up in Boston, she's now practicing as an endocrinologist. So that's the one. That's three. Yes. And then David, and then Andrea, and then Daniel, and then me. So the short version of the story is we've got seven doctors in the family, and I'm I'm the last in the line. Wow, that's a streak for sure. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So we had we had one fun day about 15 years ago on Good Morning America with Diane Sawyer. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And we were on the cover of the the home section of the New York Times. So anybody who wants to look that part up, <laughs> I was not eloquent, but I certainly look like a medical resident. They made me wear my, my white coat. They flew me down from Boston to New York City. Uh, we had our 15 minutes of fame. But if you look at the clip, you'll see that I wasn't through it yet. I was right in the middle of it. If you look carefully at my eyes, you can see that there was sort of a dullness there. Uh, if I look back, going back, 
part of it has to do with why do we become physicians? So I was a very sensitive kid, very empathic. I had my own sensitivities and wounds. There was a little bullying going on when I was a kid. And I had this sense of other people's emotions early on. And yet I grew up in a house where, for the most part, the youngest were to be seen but not heard. So I was good at talking one-on-one with friends, but when everybody was around the table, I didn't have a lot to say. And I felt like if I didn't have something smart to say, I probably shouldn't shouldn't say too much. Right. And if you come and visit my house in New Jersey today, you'll see there's one large picture on the wall, four feet by three feet, and it is Albert Einstein, who was my mom's hero. My mom was a nuclear physicist back when that was a thing for women in 1950s, 60s, and she worshipped the guy. And so looking up at that picture, we all got this very strong message like, you better study your tail off, do something good with your life, and save the world. (laughs) Right. Right. So she's from the Madame Curie cohort of female physicists. <laughs> yes, exactly. Except she didn't win two Nobel Prizes gotcha, like Curie. Gotcha. So going back, there was obviously a tremendous amount of pressure to not only to be successful and academic, but to do something that was useful and of service. And I saw that as a, as a huge virtue. And yet it was a, looking back, it was just a huge pressure on a child. Right. Um, and there was the early strains of perfectionism, of fear of failure of fear of admitting mistakes. And that did not serve me well when I found myself 10 and 20 years later needing real help for anxiety and depression. And so it was in residency where I ended up at one of the Harvard hospitals, Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a phenomenal place to train. I mean, some of the top cardiologists in the world, Eugene Brownwald, Smarty Pants, and a couple of my other mentors were there, Elliot Antman. So it was great to become a doctor, and yet there was never talk back then about self-care. I mean, that's, right. a, that's a modern concept. And so the self-care was, you know, who could stay up through the night and work the next day without showing it the most? Yeah. The self-care prod was, what's your problem? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. It was. It was. And Thinking back even to medical school, I was at Mount Sinai in New York, another amazing program. I just remember my surgical rotation where it was like, you didn't go to the bathroom. You didn't say that you were tired. God forbid. I mean, it was an honors type of a system and you knew what you needed to do. It was almost like the military where you could not express, as I call it, human needs. Basic human needs was a foreign concept. Right. So you don't eat, you don't sleep. And... Over the years, uh, it was practice that we did, all of us, to deny our basic human needs in service of becoming this idealized version of a physician, whatever that was. And it felt good, right? Because I was mastering the craft. I was learning how to do surgery and medicine and all that. And yet, looking back, there was this loneliness that was happening, not just from normal people in the world who were not doctors, who didn't know what it was like to be up all night and seeing people dying and feeling guilty and responsible that what did I do wrong? but also feeling a sense of separation from my own partners, my own colleagues, because you can't admit when you're tired and feeling human. Mm. Everyone's pretending, Dyke. We were all just, I think, my opinion, even the people who look like they had their you-know-what together, I think we were all just putting on this mask of mastery and not showing that we were deeply human. Well, and I think that some of the things we teach is that burnout in residency in medical school is different than burnout out in practice. 
because the assignment of the medical education process is different than the assignment, the life assignment of being out in practice. Med school and residency is pure survival. It's a pure survival contest. And I call it the energetic equivalent of waterboarding. We're going to push you to see what you can take. And if you break, if you don't show up, you're out. So there's two rules. Patient comes first, never show weakness. And those get drilled in deep in residency. And they aren't drilled in as deeply right now because of work hour restrictions. But obviously, you were one of the last classes that didn't have those kinds of things imposed upon you. And so to survive residency is actually the first rite of passage, right? Once you get out, you've made it. What do they call the person who graduates last in their medical school class, right? Doctor, <laughs> exactly. It doesn't matter what order. You just got to get there. And then they throw the doors open when you're board certified and you've got your whole life ahead of you. It's like, whoa, I am not prepared for this. How do I write the wrongs and the deprivation and the isolation of the last six, seven, eight years to construct a life in this situation. Yeah. So I'm assuming that you made it to the end of your residency. I did. I made it to the residency. I made it into fellowship. And the pattern continued, I would say, to some degree. Whatever we want to call it, deprivation, isolation. I was suffering from anxiety. No one once talked to me about what you do when a patient is dying. What do you do with the feelings that are going to come up right. and you can't talk about? I remember going back to residency when I was on an oncology rotation and a young woman was dying of breast cancer. <clears throat> she had ascites and I just lost it. I just walked and I was in the, in the stairwell weeping. And I carry that with me because nobody ever talked to me. My attending knew that I was struggling a little bit. I think he talked briefly, but we didn't have a conversation on how do you deal with life and death, these basic existential issues that are part and parcel of being a doctor. But what message does it say when you are feeling that way and nobody's talking about it? I mean, it's even more powerful than if they said, we don't talk about these things around here, young man. Yeah. They're just clearly, their absence is a ringing order of what you do and what you don't do. Yeah. And looking back, I feel like I could have brought a lot more of my humanity to my patients back then if I was able to process some of that grief, which is what it was, and not carry it with me for 20 years. And that's just one patient. It's not talking about the 21-year-old who came in in a helicopter in cardiac arrest who we coded for a half an hour and eventually died. No one talked to me about grieving there. Get back in the saddle, young man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was part of the upbringing in medicine and the culture of medicine as it was then and went through fellowship, attending. And I went from a private practice in New York to a large multi-state system about 13 years ago. And I discovered this new concept called metrics. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I had never been measured before other than my height and my weight and my blood pressure. And I imagine that I imagine they weren't measuring your empathy. <laughs> no, no, that was not. Somehow that wasn't on the list. Not only that, it was as someone had the, I would say, an, an honesty, it was the lack of insight, not only to publish our metrics and send them out to all members of the group in terms of RVUs per month uh, and satisfaction scores, but to put our names on them and to send them to all the doctors in the group so you could see exactly who was where. Well, what does that do to your sense of value and your sense of worth and, and to competition? So I guess where I was, I was busting it. I was working my tail off. I saw between two and 3,000 patients every year. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist. I was at the bottom of the scale. Right. So 
at the same time, I'm struggling. All you had to do, you had me at non-invasive. <laughs> yes, exactly. Non-invasive. Preventative, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, underneath the ground on the totem pole, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So, so there was this whole new dynamic that was happening that, first of all, I had my own personal demons of very strong self-judgment and self-criticism and imposter syndrome and all the good stuff, right? All the juicy stuff that I was working out at the time. I was working, fortunately, encouraged to get help by my best friend, uh, who was also my sister, Andrea. She saw that I was struggling. She was a doctor herself. And she said, Johnny, that's what she called me, that Johnny, can you just be kind to yourself? This is before anyone was talking about self-compassion, which is a very big thing right now. This is, this is almost 20 years ago. And, um, and because she said that to me, Dyke, behind the scenes during residency, I terrified, I found a therapist and I, I can tell you this now. And there's a personal risk that I take by talking to you about these things because the licensing boards, they ask you, you know, have you had a history of this? Have you had a history of that? And uh, I realize that I'm taking a risk talking about these. And yet I feel very strongly that if I don't speak about this, honestly, because People who don't know this about me, what they do know is that I'm a top-rated cardiologist in North Carolina. I've got top patient rating scores. Within my group, I'm respected, but people don't know that I struggled with anxiety and depression. And I know, they haven't told me, but I know my partners are struggling with the same thing. But they're afraid to say it. And so part of the reason that I'm sharing this with you is very intentional. And it's to try to shift the culture of medicine to say, that unless we say that this is my face, this is a human being here who's spent his career, his lifetime giving of himself to try to do good for his patients. And yes, for various reasons, which we can get into, I've struggled emotionally. I've struggled to be a a good father many times. I've struggled to be a good husband many times, even this week. And some of those struggles have to do with this culture of medicine that we inherited, and I believe it can be changed. So that's a bit of the backstory and an important part of my, my narrative, uh, and I'll call it a narrative because part of my own recovery was to discover my own narrative. And we can touch on that, is that my best friend, my sister Andrea, was diagnosed with a brain tumor about 12 years ago. And I slowly watched her die as I was transitioning into the metrics and the bottom of the totem pole and, and seeing thousands of patients a year who I could not share any of this with, let alone my colleagues. Right. Wow. And, 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 and here's, here's what I'm going to pay, pay homage to, uh, and that is the fact that you're still a really nice guy. Because, and I can vouch for that. One of the things that sometimes happens, and it's a piece of the programming that some people absorb, you know, like their main line in it, and some people don't. And because they can't absorb this, it, they are challenged like you is you're not supposed to have emotions for your patients. You're not supposed to feel for your patients. And and that's impossible. I hope that it's impossible for a doctor to come through the education system even now and not have feelings for their patients. And yet, because we can't show them, you may think that you need to not have feelings for your patients. But because it's impossible, that becomes another layer of imposter. What's wrong with me? Hmm. That patient died and I cried in the stairwell. What's wrong with me? I haven't got what it takes. And you shut down your feelings and you put it in layers. And maybe you're a trauma surgeon. Maybe you're an intensivist. Maybe you're a neurosurgeon. Maybe you're an ER doctor or nurse, right? And you get Hmm. layer after layer after layer because you've placed yourself as a light worker in harm's way in a place where trauma happens on a daily basis. Hmm. And it beats the feelings out of us. 
And the only place, the only place that we can reconnect with some of those things sometimes is, again, in community. I believe anytime doctors and nurses and EMTs and anybody who works in the front lines get together outside of work just to hang with each other, doesn't matter what the context is, is mm. therapeutic because we get time to open up and share and just yeah. hang with each other. Yeah. And maybe so, you tell a story like you just did and maybe we're okay with that. And that yeah. right there is a breakthrough. Yeah, it's the telling of the story. And I learned a lot of that from Brene Brown, who's done such good work on vulnerability and dealing with grief and shame. And she teaches that the way we heal shame is by sharing it in a way. And then the question is, well, why is there shame, right? Why should you have any shame? You're really doing your best and you're struggling internally for years and years and keeping it a secret. The shame is that you're not measuring up to some concept of what a doctor should be, just like you just said. And the shame is, you know, am I doing the best for my patients? And I'm not living up to my role as a, as a man, as a husband. A task you will always fail if that's the way you judge yourself. Yeah. And so part of the healing <laughs> process, yes. And that's just the whole key, I would say, skipping forward. You know, we can talk about the transition point and the journey, uh, but so much of it is learning to talk differently to myself and mastering the communication, not, not with my patients, not with you, Mastering the communication with myself. Yep. So I've coached probably over a thousand doctors at this point, and I've recovered from my own burnout. And I can tell you that uh, dealing with the inner voice, and I'm not talking about, you know, hallucinations or anything, but dealing with the voices of the parts of your personality is a big cause of some of the distress that causes burnout in some people and a big uh, cause of struggles to recover. So I've used personally and coached people personally in a technique called active imagination that Carl Jung developed in the early 1900s that allows you to dialogue with these inner voices that are talking back and forth because the voices of perfectionism, right? Uh, the voices of guilt and shame drive performance. There was a point in your life when they served you and actually pushed you along the path to the excellence in academics and other things that allowed you to become a doctor in the first place. But now those same voices, which were developed when you were a small child, the youngest of seven, by the way, a small child, no longer serve you. And what we need to do as adults is to listen to the voices of our inner dialogues and recognize this is mindfulness. Is that voice saying that to me right now useful? Now that I'm living, hopefully, an intentional life, I have an intention of what I'm going to do at work today. Does that voice help me right now? Because if it doesn't, I'm just going to give that little one a little hug and send them back to the group home to play with the others, and I'll just get on with what I had on my schedule for today. Thank you very much. And by the way, it's easy to know, and, and Brene Brown's work is great, but here's what I'll say, and we can go into it if you'd like. Vulnerability is a consequence of a hostile culture because all of us yearn for a group where we can be open, honest, truthful, and transparent. Mm -hmm. And to be open, honest, truthful, and transparent and seen and welcomed for whatever that truth is that you just told is what we all yearn for. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that group where you don't feel vulnerable to have been open, honest, truthful, and transparent, that's what we all yearn for. When you are open, honest, truthful, and transparent, and something happens that makes you feel like you've just put yourself in danger, that's a hostile culture that is acting upon your urge to transparency. And mm -hmm. so when I coach folks that are wellness champions, what I say is the best way to start a wellness program is to tell your story first. Mm -hmm. The good and the bad, and especially the ugly, 
Mm. Because people are going to watch you tell your story and you're not going to spontaneously combust. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, the level of trust in the, the, the culture begins to maybe move. The needle begins to maybe move. Mm. Beautiful. I'm with you. Is there a code in the ICD to, for spontaneous combustion? <laughs> it's got, I don't know, but it's got 10 decimals, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that, that's wonderful. And thank you. We don't need to go any deeper into this today because I think we've made the key points about the confusion of an apprentice light worker in the carnage of a healthcare delivery system, wondering what to do with their emotions and seeing that doing Anything with them other than stuff them is not a component of the culture of training, or at least it wasn't for you and it wasn't for me. I'll, I'll also give just a hint of what the last decade has been like, because for me, it's been joyful and it's been meaningful. And a lot of that started with the discovery of the field of positive psychology a decade ago. This was after my sister died. I discovered Maslow again, but really Martin Seligman and Sonia Lubomorsky and Tal Ben-Shahar and all these wonderful thinkers. And as a scientist, I was heartened to know that there is actually evidence about what makes a human being happy, even in the midst of suffering. So that was part of it. And then I discovered this tool called meditation, this mental training. And I went overboard with that and went on longer and longer silent retreats and spent a week at a Zen monastery three or four years ago silently. And then I decided to go on to Oxford two years ago and become a mindfulness meditation teacher. So I've now trained several thousand people in my organization in the practices of mindfulness, compassion. And it's really what I love to talk about and to help people with, to help them move their bodies. So yoga, tai chi, qigong. And at the same time, I recognize that that's part of healing. That's the inner healing. But that's not how we're going to heal healthcare. We're going to heal healthcare by working at organizational levels. And so if we can work both from within to get ourselves as physicians, either in a state of burnout or anxiety or anger or rage, whatever it is, if we can learn to develop emotional agility, then we can start to have meaningful conversations to impact leaders and to become leaders ourselves and to start to shift the needle of healthcare. I'm not talking about giving someone a yoga class or teaching someone how to meditate as the solution. That is not it. Dyke, it's like you talk about. It's the canary in the coal mine, right? Well, and there is no solution. There's no solution. It's a dilemma, right? Yeah, and, and you need actually the, the simplest way to understand how to change the prevalence of burnout in the healthcare delivery system is to know that it's a parallel, simultaneous set of strategies. Every individual, every canary in the coal mine needs their own personal burnout prevention strategy, and you've just outlined some of the components of yours. And then if I'm working inside a healthcare delivery organization, the coal mine, somebody's got to be watching the mine. Mm -hmm. And medical education doesn't give you the tools or the awareness to build your own personal strategy. So one of the things the mine has to do is teach the canaries how to take care of themselves. Because, and again, the modern organization is a relatively recent development. Corporations are less than 150 years old, I believe. Mm -hmm. But the modern medical healthcare delivery organization that employs hundreds of doctors, I mean, there's been hospitals forever, but they didn't employ all the doctors. And now we have multi-state systems that employ tens of thousands of doctors. And it's almost like an exotic beast. You decided to be a farmer and, and you decided you were going to raise alpacas, but you've never, you don't know what an alpaca is and you don't know how to raise them. The care and feeding of a population of doctors is something no one knows how to do. It's herding cats, right? 
So what we have to do, and we've been doing this for a decade, is figure out some ways to build a better mine and figure out some ways to teach the canaries how to build their own strategy. And together, I think we can move forward into a healthier tomorrow, only in the United States, only to the extent that we can prove that that is an actual business best practice. Mm-hmm. that it leads to superior performance. If I can add one more piece of my own resiliency uh, solution, and that is to turn it around and say, I've gotten help from so many people, mm-hmm. who can I now help? And that's the ultimate solution. I feel very fortunate to work at Novant Health where we're we're doing it well. We've got a chief well-being officer. His name is Dr. Tom Jenicky, and he's created a program that's we're going to be growing it out over the next few years to try and lead the way um, to help frontline workers in the midst of COVID and also to create a sustainable model of healthcare. And that's bringing me tremendous sense of meaning and fulfillment that I can pay it back a little bit to all the people who've helped me along the way, including you. <laughs> well, and I, I'm going to give you one charge. I'm going to throw down right now. You ready? Yep. You and the wellness uh, organization there at Novant, it's imperative that you get on the same page with your CEO and CFO about how you're going to measure the success of your program so that you can demonstrate a return on the monies that are being invested in your program. And I challenge you too, because I know you're getting outside money for this, at least in part. I challenge you to prove so much value that they say they don't need the outside money and they fund it with their operational budget. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. Because if they're paying for it because they know there's a return and they can't live without it, you can take those charitable funds and, and foundation funds and you can use them for some higher purpose. Yeah. Right on, right on, you. right on. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate you telling your story. And I really appreciate you pointing out that because we are a federation of states here in the United States, that every state health board, every state licensing organization for physicians has different rules and regulations. And yes, Some states still have their their relicensing rules written in such a way that any disclosure of struggle along the way can be used against that physician. And I've known of people being forced into treatment for weird things like that. So thank you for telling your story. And thank you for opening up that as a way for people who are listening to understand what they're going through and how just stuff in your feelings isn't necessarily the best thing to do. I'm sorry for the loss of your sister. Thank you. I think she's still there on your shoulder pushing you a little bit. (laughs) She's here. She's here and she's happy about the changes that we're going to be making together. Yeah. Have a great rest of your day. Okay. Thanks, Dyke. You too. I appreciate it. See you. Bye. Bye.